We have spent the last handful of Sundays exploring what it's like for us to encounter Jesus in the Gospel of John. And today, we're going to be watching a story unfold in John chapter 8, starting in verse 2. And so I'd like to get right to it. Got a Bible with you. Would you like to follow along? We're going to start reading together in John 8, 2. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, My dear woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you so much for the gift of of Scripture and the amazing way it can help us see Christ and our world and ourselves more clearly. We ask you to open the eyes of our hearts so that we notice what you want us to notice, so that we learn what you want us to learn. Help us become the people you believe we can be. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Now, if, if we want to get the most out of the story in John chapter 8, it's really helpful if we take just a few moments to go back to see all the events that, that lead up to this in John chapter 7. And, and what John chapter 7 is really dealing with is something that we've been witnessing throughout the gospel of John. And it's that throughout that gospel, the, the entire telling of John's version of the story, there's been this tension that's growing between Jesus and the religious leaders, more specifically between Jesus and the Pharisees. They they clearly believe in the same God, and they read the same scriptures, but they don't see God the same way. They they don't see the world in the same way. They, They don't see God's mission to the world in the same way. And while there's been lots of back and forth interactions between them, while they've had several uh, conversations that were challenging and, and kind of filled with, with conflict, it doesn't appear that in the first seven chapters of John that they've made any headway in, in seeing things eye to eye. It doesn't seem like they've, they've been able to reach a place of sharing any kind of common ground. And as you get to John chapter 7, it it suddenly becomes obvious that this distance between them is starting to boil over into something that's really, really dark and toxic 
and destructive. Now, now part of what really makes things kind of, kind of hit a boiling point in John chapter 7 is that in the course of one chapter, we witness the, the religious leaders, and again, especially the Pharisees, we, we watch them have to endure three consecutive blows. Right? There's three consecutive things that take place that push them to this, this place in their hearts where they're just they're certain that they are at risk of losing their power of influence and they're blaming Jesus for it. I mean, they, they look at him and they're, they're certain that it's basically all his fault and they've got to do something about it. So it, it starts out when Jesus decides that he's going to take it upon himself. He's not asked to do this. He just decides to speak publicly to teach at the Festival of Tabernacles, which is this festival, this feast that everybody gathers together. And, and so there's this crowd and Jesus stands up and he starts to instruct them. And as is so often the case, when Jesus starts to teach or instruct, he, he just amazes them. They are captivated by his ability to share God's heart through his words. And they're not just impressed with his teaching ability, but they're impressed with him as a teacher. And so as a crowd, they start to say to one another, you know, this, this guy's clearly not just good at teaching. There's something more going on here than that. He's, he's a prophet. I mean, he's, he's sent to us from God. And then there's other people in the crowd that, that even start to talk about the fact that he's not just a prophet. Maybe he's actually the, the Messiah that they've all been waiting for all this time. And as soon as the Pharisees hear this gathered crowd of people talking about Jesus as a prophet and the Messiah, they know that they're in danger of losing these people who, who they've, they've tried to be spiritual leaders to them for as long as they can remember. And now these these people are turning to Jesus because they think he might be a better spiritual leader. That's the first blow they have to endure. Now, in reaction to it, the Pharisees approach the, the temple guard and they say, Look, this guy, he's got this following. There's more and more people trusting him. There's more and more people listening to him. And he's a false teacher. And you need to do something about it. I mean, here he is in the temple courts and, and he's teaching things that aren't true about God and about the world and about God's people and their mission in the world. You, you've got to intervene. Arrest him. And usually when the Pharisees come to the temple guard and say there's a problem, you need to arrest somebody, they're disturbing the peace, they listen and they do what they're told. But this time they don't. They refuse to carry out the order. That's the second blow. And then in the wake of that, one of, one of their own, a fellow Pharisee, a man introduced to us by John back in John chapter 3, Nicodemus, a man who we know, even though he's a Pharisee, has, has this suspicion, this growing sense that Jesus is, isn't just a rabbi, that he, he really might be a prophet, he, he really might be the Messiah. In fact, Nicodemus is, is kind of personally, maybe privately, secretly wrestling with, with coming to the place where he, he thinks Jesus might actually be the Son of God. Nicodemus stands up and accuses his fellow Pharisees of wrongdoing. He says that they're not being fair to Jesus. He says that, that they're trying to, to basically pull off a miscarriage of justice. And that's the third blow. So you've got 
the people turning against them. You've got temple guards turning against them. You've got one of their own turning against them. And it pushes the Pharisees and the teachers of the law over the edge. I mean, they've, they've had more than they can handle. They, they decide right then and there that they're going to do whatever it takes to take Jesus down. Whatever it takes. Because they've convinced themselves that having this This false teacher among them, having Jesus reaching out to the people that they feel like have been entrusted to them, well, it excuses any kind of tactic they might take. So they hatch a plan. They they set a trap. They're, They're going to try to make Jesus make a choice. And they set this choice up where on either side of the choice, there's risk involved. They just need... They need a person who, has, who has committed a crime against the law of Moses, right? Somebody who's guilty of breaking a crime that's punishable by death. Now, if they can do that, if they can get that person and they go to Jesus and they, they try to make him make a choice about what should happen to that person, if, if Jesus goes on the record saying that he supports the act of taking that person's life, and especially if Jesus says, look, we, we, we're going to follow exactly what the law of Moses says. We're going we're to stone the sinner. It's going to be public. That if that happens, these religious leaders know that, that he's going to be in danger. He's going to be exposing himself to the accusation that he's being insubordinate to the laws of the Roman Empire. Because during Jesus' lifetime, the Jews don't actually have the legal authority to carry out capital punishment, even if it lines up with the law of Moses. If they come to the place where they decide somebody's committed a crime and it's worthy of death, they have to formally petition to have the right to carry out that execution. Right? So if Jesus just offhandedly says in the courts of the temple, look, this person you found who's sinful Uh, They're deserving a death. Go ahead and carry it out. He could be in danger of punishment. And they're hoping that the punishment that the Roman local authorities would, would carry out against Jesus would be extreme. Maybe even death. Okay, on the other hand, if as a, a Jewish rabbi, a spiritual teacher... If he goes on the record saying something along the lines of, look, the law of Moses doesn't really apply anymore. Then the religious leaders know that he's running the risk of losing his his gathered group of people who are following him, right? He's, He's probably going to lose his audience. And if enough people stop listening to him, if enough people stop following him, well then he's going to get to the place where they don't really have to worry about what he's teaching anymore. They don't have to worry about what he's saying anymore because he's not going to have anybody around him to listen. And so they will have, they will completely taken away his ability to be a problem. What they want more than anything else is for him to be gone. They don't want to have to deal with the fact that having Jesus around as a teacher, as a leader, is causing people to question their teaching, to challenge their leadership. So on the one side, you got possible imprisonment and death. On the other side, you've got probable irrelevance and rejection. This is the trap. 
that the Jewish leaders want to set for Jesus. Now again, they just need somebody guilty of a severe enough sin, according to the law of Moses, that they can make this whole thing work. And they find that someone. Right? They find this woman. And they don't just find her, but they actually discover her in the very moment that she is committing adultery. Now, you can call that coincidental timing. Somebody tipped them off. I mean, they basically have a night to find this person. Between John chapter 7 to John chapter 8 is a night. They have one night to find this person, and they just happen to walk in at just the right moment. And and to make matters even more suspicious, they don't actually follow the, the instructions of the law of Moses when it comes to what you're supposed to do if you find a couple committing the act of adultery. You're actually supposed to take both of them, the man and the woman, together, and they are supposed to face the punishment of the community together. The guy's not anywhere to be found. And you start to wonder, is he the one who tipped them off? Was he working with them? Did he seduce this woman at just the right time, just when they needed it to happen? We we don't know. We won't ever know. But because they don't bring him along, we can't know. They aren't actually trying to follow the law of Moses, right? The goal here isn't to... To do that, they, they just want to be able to accuse Jesus of failing to follow the law of Moses. This isn't about honestly dealing with the destructive power of adultery in the presence of the community, which is, which is the heart, which is the spirit of what the law of Moses is trying to deal with when it comes to adultery, right? It's that destructive power that that the community is trying to face up to and deal with. This isn't about any of that for them. This is about them finding someone that they can use to advance their agenda. This is about finding someone, then reducing them to something that they can use to win. So they drag this nameless, faceless woman right into the middle of this crowd of people the next morning that have gathered around as Jesus is teaching again in the temple courts. They stand her up right in the middle of everyone, and then they ask Jesus this careful question. You know they workshopped it and crafted it and got it ready, and then they drew straws of who was the poor guy who was going to have to ask it. And they have her standing there. She's nothing more at this point than a trembling, scared-to-death visual aid. And they say, you know, the law of Moses commands us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? Right? And the the trap is set. Because if he says stoner, he's going to get in trouble with the Romans. If he says the law of Moses is wrong here, he's going to get in trouble with everybody else. So they set the trap, and then they wait for Jesus to choose wrong, no matter which choice he makes. Problem is, he doesn't choose. Jesus Jesus just never goes long when people are trying to trip him up like this, right? He, He refuses to answer the question. In fact, he does something that had to drive them crazy. 
They've worked themselves up into this frenzy. They've interrupted his teaching. They've got all these people watching. You know, if this was a movie, the, the, the music would be swelling at this point, and you'd be feeling the tension building, and he goes, just wait a second, I'd like to doodle in the sand over here. And forever, people have been wondering what it is he's writing. Right? And they've made all kinds of guesses. It doesn't matter what he's writing. It didn't matter to John what he was writing. It doesn't matter what he's writing. It's the fact that he's writing instead of speaking. Right? Because that's what they want him to do. They, they want him to, to rush to a decision. And they want to be able to use whatever response he gives against him. So he refuses to do that, right? He chooses by writing instead of talking. He chooses to create space and time to slow things down in an already overheated moment of confrontation. He's giving himself time to think, to pray, to breathe. And I think he's showing us, brothers and sisters, that sometimes one of the very best things we can do in in a tense moment is to take a step back. You know, to, to give ourselves a little, a little time to think, to pray, to breathe. I mean, Jesus, I think, needs to create a moment of calm. So he does. And we don't know how long it lasts. I mean, they, Pharisees and the teachers, they're not going to be denied. They're going to stick around. They're going to keep asking him questions, John says. And they're, they, they keep interrogating him. I'm guessing they're just asking slightly different versions of the same question, which is, we've got her here. We've got her here. What are you going to do about it? What are we supposed to do about it? You've got all these people watching. You're making all these people wait. And finally, when Jesus is good and ready, he responds. He does not react. He responds. And what he ends up saying to them becomes, well, one of the most famous sentences he ever ends up saying to anybody. Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. They didn't see that coming. Bless you, by the way. They didn't see that coming. Jesus finds a way to answer what can only be described as their devious question without getting caught in the the trap. Right? He He doesn't get tripped up in whatever it is they're trying to to confuse him with. And, and do you know how he avoids their trap? Do you know how he does it? This is so important. Because I've read this story thousands of times. And I don't, I don't know that I've noticed this before. This is how he avoids their trap. He realizes that this story isn't about him. And it's not about them figuring out some way to beat him. It's about her. That's who this story in the chapter of Jesus' life, that's, that's who this story is actually about. This nameless, faceless woman who they have dehumanized and reduced to a scared, shattered object lesson. It's about her. It's about her life. It's about her soul. It's about her getting a second chance that she doesn't deserve for a second. It's about her finding freedom beyond her struggle with sin that she is clearly currently losing. Right? It, it's a story. The entire thing is about her. 
Now, you might have already noticed this, but if this story is about her, it's really convicting to me that the only person in the story who talks directly to her is Jesus. Everybody else only talks about her. You know how it feels when people talk about you when you're standing right there. It's especially worse if they're talking about you in ugly ways while you're standing right there. Everyone else in the story talks about her. They talk about her. They talk about her, her mistake. They speak as if her mistake is the most important thing to know about her, as if her mistake is the only thing you need to know about her. They speak about her sin as if her sin is her. They, they, they talk about her sin as if it's her entire identity. Right? We found her sinning. What does the law of Moses tell us to do with women like this? Right? It, it, it's who she is to them because it's the only thing about her that matters. They're trying to win an argument with her. They don't care about her. But Jesus does. You know, he, he finds a way. And I think it had to be a challenge because this whole story is set up as a contest between the Pharisees and the, the teachers of the law and Jesus. It's, it's a battle between them, right? It's a, it's a struggle between them. Jesus says, we're, we're, both, we're both looking in the wrong direction if we're only looking at each other on two sides of a disagreement. What about her? What about her? Jesus, he refuses not only the way they ask the question, he refuses to accept the way they've used someone to create this situation entirely. And he finds this amazing way because he cares about her. I'm telling you, that's the key. He finds this amazing, imaginative way to somehow both honor the law of Moses, to not deny it, but to save her life in the process. He finds a way to save her by making them stop looking at her sin long enough to look at their own. With just a few words, Jesus creates this kind of spiritual mirror. And he places the mirror between this woman and her accusers. And they have nowhere else to look but at themselves. And they don't like what they see. And so one by one, they find the wisdom to walk away. And I, I love that Jesus, once everybody's left, he finally has a conversation with her and he starts it with a question, which Jesus often starts conversations with people with questions. That's, that's just a habit he has. But I love that he doesn't start the conversation with a predictable question, the question I would ask her, which is after everybody else would leave, I'd say, okay, all right, lady, why'd you do it? That's not what he asks her. He doesn't say, all right, lady, why did you do it? What does he say? My dear woman, has no one condemned you? Where are they? Where are they? He, in other words, when he starts speaking to her, he doesn't start by speaking to her about her sin. He starts by speaking to her about the fact that nobody's left to condemn her for her sin. My dear woman, where are they? And in a direct echo right, of John three seventeen, where 
we are told that God's one and only son comes into the world not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him, he refuses to condemn this woman who's standing in front of him. He just won't do it. But I want to point this out to you. Once they're alone, right, and once she knows that because of him, she's both saved and safe, Jesus does speak to her about her sin. He does. He doesn't lecture her about it. He doesn't try to make her feel worse than she already does. Instead, he speaks about her life beyond her sin. He speaks about her life free from the shackles of sin. In other words, he imagines a future for her that isn't stained by her sin. And then he asks her to believe in that future too. Jesus doesn't come into the world to condemn us, but to save us through him. And so he says to her, you're free to go. You're free to live. Live better. Live different. You don't have to be who you feel like you are in this moment. When Jesus responds to the sin in our lives, He never condemns who we are, but he also never condones what we've done. That is such a hard balance to strike. But Jesus tells us through his example that it really is possible. This this woman is guilty. You can tell by the way Jesus talks to her that he knows she's guilty of committing the sin of adultery. And and Jesus is well aware of the destructive power that adultery sets loose not only in marriages but in lives, in communities. And Jesus isn't about to let her believe that he doesn't care about that destructive power. He's going to address it. But at the same time, Jesus just isn't about to let her start to believe that her worst decision gets to completely define her for the rest of her life. He wants her to learn, in other words, how to see herself the way he sees her as a dearly loved child of God who, because of that love, really can live better. She really can be different. Jesus knows that that kind of of life transformation is always grounded in grace. It never grows. It it never thrives in the soil of shame. And, And we know this, brothers and sisters. I know that we do, but so often, for whatever reason, we find ourselves at at times, you know, hurt and angry and frustrated. And just like those Jewish religious leaders, we we reduce our, our strategies of interacting with people to to shame and, and the threat of punishment. And so often we tend to use those as our primary ways of interacting with people whose lives are already being torn apart by sin. And we end up making it clear to them that we don't see them as much as we see their mistakes. So we threaten them and we criticize them. And if we're honest, we end up condemning them. And here's how we justify that. Because we kind of have this twisted idea that condemnation comes before repentance. That's not how it works. Condemnation comes before resentment. Not repentance. 
But see, we think, well, maybe if I condemn somebody in just the right way, with all the right force, I'll wake them up and suddenly they'll realize the mistake they've made and then they'll, they'll turn their life around, they'll pull their life together. And then maybe when they've proven that they're pulling their lives together, I might offer them a little bit of grace and a little bit of acceptance. But in this story, Jesus never participates in condemning this woman. He refuses to threaten her as a way to get through to her. He doesn't want to scare her into behaving in a certain way. He wants to save her into living in a new way. And so he rescues her before he challenges her. He rescues her before he tries to speak a challenging truth to her. Because he knows that's the only way she can actually hear him. I mean, they have almost literally put a gun to her head. When they drag her into the temple courts and they've caught her and she's guilty. And then they, they kind of throw her on the mercy of the wrong guy if you're hoping for him not to show mercy. She doesn't know any of that for sure, right? And, and can you imagine how different this story would be if Jesus had said these same words? He says, he waits till they're alone to talk to her about this. He waits till he's already rescued her to talk like this. But can you imagine how different the story would be if Jesus chose to say those same words in a different tone while everybody was still standing around? If while they were all there, her accusers, along with this just crowd of, of people who'd been listening to him, if he'd said, go. And stop the sinning, right? Cut it out. Don't do it anymore. Go. If he had said that to her in front of everybody else, he would have simply deepened her sense of public humiliation. He would have, in other words, caused her to experience even more shame. But Jesus knows better than that. He knows that when it comes to actually creating lasting positive change in someone else's life, shame doesn't work. Shame doesn't work. Brothers and sisters, it just doesn't. Hope works. Compassion works. Patience works. Being willing to walk alongside of someone who's still struggling works. Being willing to stand up for someone who's being attacked because they're struggling, that works. Being understanding when someone stumbles and falls because we're constantly aware of all the times we've stumbled and we've fallen, well, that works. Doing our best to be honest with someone about their sin, while at the same time making sure they understand that their sin can never become their entire identity, that works. All of that works. Shame doesn't work. We aren't called to condemn people into believing that they need God to save them. We're called to love people into believing that more than anything else, God wants to save them. You know, I, growing up, it was one of my favorite stories. And if you'd ask me, well, how do you, how do you summarize? What's, what's the point of the story? If you had to put it in one sentence, I think I would have said, don't judge. You know, stop judging. None of us has the right to pick up a stone and throw it at anybody else because we've all got sin in our lives. Stop, stop judging. But, you know, I don't think that the way God calls us to grow and change is by just asking us to stop things. He, he always asks us to stop something so we can start something. 
right? So it's, it's not enough to say this story is about us finding a way to stop judging. I think we're actually supposed to be using this story to find whatever it is that's the opposite of judging other people. And the opposite of judging other people is not simply trying to stop seeing their sin, right? This isn't a story about pretending that when we interact with people who are struggling that we're blind. That's, that's not what this is. The opposite of judging other people is caring about them more than we care about whatever sin they're struggling with. We see the sin they're struggling with. In fact, oftentimes it's why we would approach them in the first place. But somehow or another, Jesus finds a way to deal with this woman's sin and keep her understanding and experiencing the entire time that she matters more to him than how she's managed to sin. That her sin has to be dealt with, but she's come to the right person. She's come to the right place to deal with her sin. And he will not allow anyone to use the name of her sin to define her identity. He just won't do it. She's more than her worst decision. She's she's better than her lowest moment. Jesus looks at her and he says to her, I know you feel trapped and stuck and scared to death and I'm telling you, I see a future for you that's better and different. You're free to go. Live that life. You're free to go. Brothers and sisters, what I want for us is to understand, to to learn from Christ that before we call someone else to take a single step in the right direction, before we call for that, first, we have to prove to them the distance we're willing to go to help rescue them. Condemnation doesn't lead to repentance. Rescue does. Rescue comes first. And then that leads to to true and lasting repentance. And here's what I, I really think we need to live with this week, brothers and sisters. Who are you helping rescue? Who are you standing up for? That's who Jesus calls us to be in this story. And he doesn't just rescue her. He risks it all to rescue her. So let me ask you again. Who are you risking everything in your life to help rescue? Who are you sacrificing to stand up for? And if you don't have an answer, if you don't see a face and a name, then brothers and sisters, we need to fix that. Because you need to have a name. I need to have a name. I need to have someone I'm risking everything for to help rescue. I need to have someone I'm standing up for, even if it means self-sacrifice. Because I don't want to just read stories about what Jesus did. I want to live stories of what Jesus is still doing. And I want the same thing for you. Rescue leads to repentance. Who are you going to rescue? With God's help, who are you going to rescue? Who are you going to stand up for? Figure it out. It's who we're called to be. We're going to sing in just a moment. I'm going to ask Mark to join me on stage. And as we do, we're going to stand. 
And the song is Mighty to Save. And I know it's a song that's about God at work in our lives and in our world. But as you sing it, I want you to promise that you're going to join God in helping someone else experience how good it is to be rescued and saved and loved into a new life. Would you stand and let's sing together now.